meaning of the word samsara is perpetual wandering. It means this perpetual wandering through the different realms of existence. Samsara means this process of continual change. And we can see this, we experience this very clearly on retreat. You see experience arising and passing away according to different conditions without any rest, without any stopping, without any ceasing. It's just one experience following another, following another, endlessly going on. Samsara is this world, this universe, of continually changing phenomena. We see it very clearly in our own experience here. The Buddha had a vast vision. He had a vision of 31 different planes of existence, the lower realms and the human realms and the deva realms and the brahma realms. And that's one world system of infinite numbers of world systems. And so there's this huge, huge vision of samsara. You know, we can get some, some feeling for that. If you've ever seen the pictures of the sky, the night sky taken through a high power telescope, you know, what we see with our naked eye, it's just, you know, these beautiful stars in the sky. But what's revealed through a high-powered telescope is hundreds of billions of galaxies and the intensity of the light and this realms of reality out there that normally we don't have access to. It's exactly the same way with the realms that we can't see normally. Not only did the Buddha have this vastness of vision in terms of all these planes of existence and countless different world systems. He also had a vastness of vision with respect to time. Basically, time as beginningless. You know, he reckoned it in eons and eons. And I don't know whether anybody has mentioned to you the, the, you know, the, the metaphor for reckoning the length of an eon, which is a bird, you know, taking a silk, having a silk cloth in its beak and rubbing it across the top of a mountain once every hundred years, the time it takes to rub the mountain away is equivalent to one mahakalpa of, it's big. (laughs) The whole thing is very big. But in all of this vastness, in this vastness of samsara, there are three salient features, three outstanding features, which are of the utmost importance to us. In all of this samsara, three things stand out. 
And that is the fact of birth, of taking birth, of decay, and of death. Every experience in our lives and our life itself is rooted in the inevitability of these three facts of taking birth, growing older, decaying, and dying. These three things condition and color and inform every aspect of our lives. They inform our values, our aspirations, our hopes, our suffering, When we look at any time frame at all, when we take any frame of reference for time, whether it's time of our lifetime, of a three-month course, of a day, of a sitting, of a moment, we see that every experience which arises, every single one which arises, also is passing away comes into existence, and it ends in death. And so the question, as we begin to open to this, the question that presents itself for us is what are we doing in our lives? What are we doing with our lives? What is it that we value? And is it worthy of our valuing it? It may be that we're looking for a sense of wholeness or a sense of completeness or a sense of fulfillment. The question is, where are we looking for those things? In the realm of samsara, in the vastness of samsara, There is only this process of continual, endless, momentary change. It's said that Buddhas arise in the world with a specific mission. It's a specific thing which is the cause or the motivation for Buddhas to arise. And that is to understand, to understand fully and deeply what is fueling this round of samsara, this wheel of samsara, this wheel of life and death. What keeps it going? To understand what actually keeps the round of samsara going and how to be free. This is the mission of the Buddha. This is our own mission. There are three interdependent cycles of events which keep fueling this round of rebirths. That's what I would like to talk about tonight. So that, we, so that we understand in ourselves and in our own experience these very profound forces 
which keep us going from lifetime to lifetime, whether we see it actually from lifetime to lifetime or from moment to moment, because it is the same process. The first of these interdependent cycles, it's like there are three wheels interlocking. The first of them is called the cycle of kalesa, or the cycle of defilement. Defilement is a very difficult word in English because we tend to personalize it. It has that connotation, you know, of a some kind of personalized badness. And so often when we use that word, or we think of defilements arising in the mind, we tend to judge ourselves or condemn ourselves. When we understand really the meaning of kalesa or defilement, we see that it's simply those forces, those factors in the mind, which make us suffer. That's all. (laughs) The trick is not to take it personally. (laughs) It's the kalesas, they torment us. You know, they torture us. They cause trouble. What's so interesting is how very often the mind justifies them. We justify their presence. You know, and we've talked about this at different times, this feeling of righteous anger. Well, I should be angry. Or kind of justified jealousy. Or whatever it is. The mind, the mind rationalizes or actually supports their presence through some particular quirkiness. It's a misreading of the situation. It's not a question of whether there are appropriate causes and conditions for these states to arise. Because there are different conditions, different causes will contribute to the arising of these states. That's not the question. The question is who is suffering with them? And so the justifying of the defilement, the justifying of the kalesa doesn't make sense because we're simply holding on to that hot burning coal. And so as we talk about kilesa, and maybe it's better to use the Pali word, because it might not have that connotation or contain within it a sense of self-judgment, understand it simply as these impersonal forces in the mind which cause suffering in the mind. The first kilesa, the, the root kilesa to understand in this cycle in this first cycle of defilement, is that of ignorance. And ignorance is a tremendously powerful force in the mind. There are different kinds of ignorance. There's the ignorance of not knowing something. And we can see this very easily in terms of worldly knowledge. 
there are a lot of things that we may not know. We're ignorant of some things in science or history or whatever. So that's fairly straightforward. There's a kind of Dharma ignorance of not knowing some things about the Dharma. For example, not knowing that actions actually have consequences. Not knowing about karma and its results. There's a third kind of ignorance. There's the worldly ignorance of not knowing. There's a Dhamma ignorance of not knowing. There's also the not knowing of what's arising in the moment. Now, when we're lost in a thought or a fantasy, we don't know. We actually don't know what's going on. Now, when we do the walking meditation and we are, you know, walking along lost in some thought form, some some mind-created world, we don't know that we're thinking, we don't know that we're walking. That's basic ignorance (laughs) of just not knowing. There's another whole domain of ignorance which is even much more difficult to overcome. Because in the ones I mentioned, there's an acknowledgement that there are things we don't know, so then we can go about learning them. The more difficult kind of ignorance is when we know something, but we know it incorrectly. We think we know it, but actually our knowing is wrong. Our knowing is incorrect. There are some striking and far-reaching examples of this in our lives. And this is the kind of ignorance that is so impactful for the way we live. When we take what is impermanent to be permanent... That's a knowing of something incorrectly. We think something is permanent that's actually impermanent. And I can just imagine the mind saying, "Hmm, I know everything's impermanent. I don't have that kind of ignorance. We do. A lot. Every time we get lost in a mood or an emotion... And this common feeling that we have when we're in the middle of it. How, how deep is that sense of not being able to imagine what it's like not having it? You know, it's like the mood or the emotion just looms in front of us as if it's going to last forever. You know, that strong sense of identification with it. Where does that identification come from? from not knowing really and deeply and fully that it's just another passing state. And so we get caught by it. Every time we become attached to something, whatever, whether it's attachment to the body, attachment to certain feelings, attachment to objects, attachment to people, the fact that the mind gets attached is a function of this ignorance. It's of not knowing, not understanding really clearly that whatever it is, is subject to change. 
that there is really nothing to hold on to. So these are the ways that we know something, but we know it incorrectly. We're taking it on some level to be lasting. Even if intellectually we know that it's not sort of in our gut or in our heart, we're acting from that place of misunderstanding. There's another kind of knowing something incorrectly. And that is understanding things which are ultimately unsatisfying to be satisfying, to be the source of our happiness. What is it that is finally unsatisfying, deeply unsatisfying? Everything that's changing. Everything that's in this process of momentarily arising and passing away, it has no possibility of actually satisfying us because it's, it's gone. But often we mistake it. We spend our lives mistaking it. Thinking, oh yes, this is going to be the source of my happiness. This is going to be satisfying. This is going to be fulfilling. And the third kind of ignorance, the third kind of mistaking something to be true that's not, is when we take things to be self. That is not self. When we take this body, when we take thoughts, when we take feelings, when we take sensations to be who we are, this is me. This is I. This is the very awesome power of ignorance in our lives, ignorance in the mind. When we mistake these most fundamental characteristics of experience, they are what characterizes all of experience, and we mistake it. We're seeing it and understanding it mistakenly. And it's clear not, of course, it's clear when we look at our own experience, but as we look about in the world, we see that most of the world is moving based on this ignorance. The beginning of a real spiritual awakening, the beginning of enlightening, is when we get glimpses of this ignorance, of when we say, oh yeah, we may know something that's not quite right, maybe incorrect. Maybe some sense, even in the beginning with some vague sense in our lives, of knowing that our understanding may not be complete or may not be exactly right. It's the movement in our lives from being very secure in our knowledge, very secure in what we think we know, to a very deep and very 
deep and full sense of how much we don't know. This is the real beginning of opening, the beginning of awakening. It's interesting then to see how we make this journey. How do we go from this first glimmer of seeing how much we don't know We might begin by thinking or reflecting about things, really using our intellects to try to understand. And in the Western world especially, these, these great philosophical systems have been constructed. When I was years and years ago at college and studying philosophy, that's what it was all about. You know, it was studying studying through the intellect how things were working. And I remember I was a freshman at school. And even then I had this very strong sort of sense of wanting to understand that I gave myself a week to figure out if God existed. You know? <laughs> and I, I really felt like my whole life depended on my coming to a resolution. And so I spent that week, I remember being obsessed with thought about it. Unfortunately, I can't remember what I... (laughs) 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 So that's one way that people begin to try to figure things out. Another way that people try to do it is to try to understand things through our feelings. And this is the idea that if something feels good, that it must be right. We use how we feel about things to be the measure of the wisdom. This is also a big mistake. It's not a reliable measure. Many things may feel good in the moment, may feel warm and cuddly and nice and actually have quite harmful consequences. Other things may feel terrible in the moment and actually be a sign of very deep understanding. May actually be something that's very beneficial. And we see both of these roots happening in our practice. When we start thinking about our practice, thinking about the Dharma, as if thinking and reflecting about it is actually going to lead us to wisdom. Thinking about the practice is not practice. Thinking about insight is not the insight. And likewise with feelings. We can see that in our practice too. As I say, sometimes we may be going through a period where there's so much suffering and we feel terrible about how things are going. And it's actually 
very good practice. It's actually deepening of wisdom. What's crucial to understand in this regard is that the range of reasoning and the range of feeling does not extend to that place of overcoming ignorance. They have their place. Reasoning has its place and feeling has its place. But their domain is limited and it does not reach to the place of actually overcoming this fundamental ignorance in the mind. And so it becomes necessary to actually train the heart, not merely follow the heart. It becomes necessary to train the mind, not merely to get lost in its thinking, in its reflections. The Buddha opened up a whole new way of understanding not based on thinking, not based on feeling. He opened up the possibility of a way of understanding things through a very deep and sustained power of observation, through the observing power in the mind. When we do this, which is what we've been doing and practicing all of these weeks, we see very clearly with a real wisdom that all of our experience is just this flow of nama rupa, of mental physical phenomena. Not through thinking about it and not through having a certain feeling because we're observing, we see moment after moment what is actually arising. we see that what we are is this process of nama-rupa. We see things always changing. You know, where is the feeling that you had three weeks ago? Not even three weeks ago. Three minutes ago. When we stop to see, when we stop to really see what our experience is about, it's so clear, it's so obvious that all of these things are just arising and passing away. Sometimes the experiences are pleasant, sometimes they're unpleasant, but they are always basically empty, basically unsatisfying in the sense that they don't last. They're there and then they're gone. They're born and then they die. that all of this momentary experience of nama-rupa is empty of any substantiality at all. There's nothing there to grasp onto or to hold. In each moment, there's a consciousness which knows one of the six sense objects, which includes the mind, the five senses in the mind. And that's really what our experience is about, moment after moment. Knowing one of six objects, around and around and around and around. As the mindfulness becomes stronger, we see for ourselves the three characteristics more and more deeply. 
until we see and understand them, the power of this kilesa of ignorance rules our lives. Because we take things in a mistaken way. Because of not seeing clearly, because of the power of ignorance, we take these arising experiences, these arising sense objects, to be essentially desirable. When something arises, one of these six, six objects, we enjoy them, we feel delighted for the moment. We feel happy for the moment, but they don't fulfill us. They don't bring that sense of completion. It's not what we most deeply want. Somebody once came to a teacher in Asia. It was a lay person dressed up in these very kind of beautiful clothes, and the, the person was obviously quite identified, you know, with what they were wearing and how well they looked. And the teacher just asked them, mentioned to them, nice bandages you're wearing. I mean, what is it that we're taking to be desirable? It's just this impermanent, empty, unsatisfying objects, one after another, coming and going. You know that. I mean, you've been sitting and, and watching this so clearly, you know, for so many weeks. It's the kalesa of ignorance. It's this force of ignorance in the mind which makes us mistake the truth of dukkha, the truth of unsatisfactoriness for the way of happiness. That's major. (laughs) And that's a major delusion. When we mistake what actually is suffering for the path of happiness. So that's something worth looking at. Because as long as we do that, we're continually disappointed. You know, we think we're on this path of happiness and we keep waiting for it and it never fulfills its promise. We're on the wrong path or a path of misunderstanding when we are seeking a lasting happiness through the experiences of the senses. So what is meant then by sense experience? It's important to know what we're talking about. It doesn't mean, when we talk of sense experience, it doesn't mean only the great and delightful pleasures that you've been fantasizing about. (laughs) Sense pleasure doesn't mean only that, you know, the the really nice ones. It means everything arising through the six sense doors. What's everything arising through the six sense doors? Everything. 
that's what there is. Samsara is this arising of objects, of sight and sound and smell and taste and sensation and mind objects, thoughts and emotions and feelings. We're on the wrong path if we think that lasting happiness comes through the experience of sense objects. What are sense objects? Everything that's arising. This suggests a very fundamental shift of understanding. It doesn't mean that we don't act in this realm of sense objects. It doesn't mean that we don't enjoy them. So I think it's really important to understand this. Because sometimes people can hear this and kind of be painting a kind of a very glum picture. It's not that. It's to really see what's what, how things are happening. And even to be able to enjoy the play in this world. But we do it from a totally different perspective. We do it from the perspective of wisdom, of understanding that nothing in this realm is actually going to bring us a lasting peace. So we're not deluding ourselves. We're not colluding with ignorance. We really see, we understand what's what. The depth of the Buddhist teachings and what I appreciate so much about it is just this profound looking at the nature of reality. He wasn't trying to please people. You know, and so he wasn't compromising. He had this amazingly awakened view of the nature of things and he was encouraging people to take a look for themselves, to wake up. Really, that's... That's the path of awakening. So that we take a very open look at the nature of our experience so we're not living in this cloud of ignorance, of not knowing. As long as ignorance, this kalesa of ignorance, predominates in the mind, and we have the idea, the very deep-seated belief that sense experience is going to make us happy, that this is where the deepest value lies, then we continue to long for and to seek these different sense experiences. And so we see how the kalesa of ignorance then conditions desire. Because of ignorance, because of not seeing clearly, desire arises in the mind. Desire for one kind of experience or another. Thinking that, yes, this is going to make me happy. And so we're always looking to the next moment, the next event, the next relationship, the next sitting. You know, it's, it's as if we're, we're continually toppling forward in our lives, waiting for that sense of arriving. 
But what are we toppling forward into? We're toppling forward into the next impermanent, unsatisfying, insubstantial moment. So, (laughs) we do that and then we try again and try again and reach out and reach out and reach out. And when we look at our lives and we look even at times in our practice here, can see that very strong power of desire in the mind, of wanting. Wanting to hold on, wanting to reach out, desiring for some object, some experience. How much of our lives is spent looking forward to something and never actually feeling that we've arrived? that we are already at home. So we see how ignorance, ignorance of the three characteristics, ignorance of seeing clearly the nature of these arising objects, how this ignorance conditions desire. It's the cause of desire arising. The ignorance is also the cause, and it's so powerful, it has such a powerful effect, It's also the cause of wrong view. It's because of ignorance that we take things to be self. We take things to be I. There's the sense that I'm enjoying, I'm hearing, I'm thinking. Or the sense that something belongs to me, this body belongs to me, this emotion belongs to me. Just imagine the moment of death. Genuinely, kind of drop into that place and, and just picture yourself in the moment of dying. What really belongs to us? What do we take? Everything is left behind. Who is the I in that moment? From craving or desire for sense objects and this sense of wrong view, a third kalesa is conditioned and that is grasping. Because we desire and because there's this strong sense of self, we hold on. The mind holds on. Kind of clinging, not wanting to let go. Ignorance leads to desire. Desire leads to grasping. This is the cycle. This is this first cycle of kilesa. First cycle of defilement. Ignorance conditioning, desire, conditioning, grasping, which keeps us bound in this wheel of samsara. Keeps us going around and around in our lives, always toppling forward, looking for the next moment, this experience. Keeps us going from life to life. When this cycle of defilement is strong and present, there's no rest, there's no peace in the mind, there's no balance. It's this cycle of defilement which then conditions the next cycle of these three interdependent rounds. And that is called the cycle of action or the cycle of karma. Because of the force of desire, because of the force of grasping and clinging, we perform all kinds of actions. We perform wholesome actions, we perform unwholesome actions. 
You know, and we can see this, you know, on many life decisions. And we can see it just throughout the day here in all the, the little momentary decisions that we make all day long. There's one factor in this cycle of karma, of action, which makes it so consequential. And I think what's of interest to me in all of this, I mean, it's somewhat interesting theoretically, but what the real interest is, is the impact all of this has in our lives. What makes this cycle of karma so immensely impactful is the working of one particular mental factor, which is the mental factor of volition. What happens in every moment that there is a willing or an intention in the mind? The power of that mental factor is that it has the capacity to bring about results. This is the power of intention. And so it's just like planting a seed. And you know that in that seed is the potential for a tree bearing many, many fruits. When you just look at the seed, and if you didn't know, didn't know the power of it, it would seem very insignificant. It would be this tiny little thing that didn't seem very much at all. But with greater wisdom, if we say, yeah, that seed has a tremendous tree contained within it. And that tree has countless fruits. Each one of our intentions has that power. And this is what the Buddha was saying about the law of karma, this round of karma, how important our actions are. Not only does it bear fruit in this life, you know, and with some degree of sensitivity we can see that our actions bring results, that they're not isolated events in a vacuum, but it also has the power, each one of these volitions of speech, of action, of thought, each one of these volitions has the power to condition rebirth. This is very, very strong forces at work here. And so we need to understand it. There are a couple of karma stories I want to share with you. Sometimes people get upset by them. So this is like a, a preview before a certain kind of movie. <laughs> but they're really some of my favorites, so I can't restrain myself. <laughs> this is a true story. <laughs> it was told to me by a friend who spent a long time in Burma. A short time ago, you know, within these last years, there was a very famous 
Burmese movie actor who wasn't a particularly nice person, but he was very famous you know, in, in films. And he died at a certain point. His family was very upset. And they went to... It's a, it's a person who, who, as they are in Burma, who was able to see where people would be reborn, who had that, just that particular psychic power and could say. So the family went and said, well, where was, we'll, we'll call him Max. I mean, he has some Burmese name, but, <laughs> you know, where was Max reborn? And the guy says, don't ask. <laughs> but the family really wanted to know, you know, so they, and again, he said, finally, the third time they insisted, so he said, okay. <laughs> you go up north, all the way up north in the countryside, and at a certain place, you'll find uh, this pig farm. And you go to where the farmer is keeping all these pigs. And you just go up there and you call out Max and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> so they did that. They went up there. This is true. This actually happened. <laughs> they went up to the farm. And they you know, all these hundreds of pigs and they're calling Max, Max. <laughs> and sure enough, this one pig you know, starts coming towards them. And they do this a few different times. You know, they mix them all up again. It's the same pig that keeps coming. So they feel, well, this probably is Max. And they took him home. They took him back with them. <laughs> and kind of installed him in, you know, in the house and they served him all kinds of nice food. And <laughs> So in some way it was mixed karma. I mean, it was <laughs> the unwholesome karma of a pig rebirth, but he got treated very well. <laughs> Volition in the mind is very powerful. <laughs> you know, it brings, it brings about results in this life. It can condition rebirth. There are also other kinds of stories, you know, going the other way as well. This one is a story from the time of the Buddha. It doesn't, it's not quite so immediate you know, in the immediate past. But the story is told of this one being who, for whatever reason, was reborn as a frog and living in a pond right near where the Buddha was teaching one day. And the frog was just sitting by the side of the pond and the Buddha was preaching. And of course, couldn't really understand the words, but he was just hearing the sound. I was able to hear the sound of the Buddha's, the Buddha's voice. Uh, and the mind of the frog got so just tranquilized, you know, from listening to the sound. And by accident, just in that time, somebody uh, was leaning with a staff, with a stick, leaned on the frog and killed it. And it was reborn immediately in the Deva worlds, you know, because of that very wholesome last moment of listening to the sound of the Buddha. So we go around and around, you know, from human realm to animal realm to deva realm. There's one story of a, of a, a monk who was doing the walking meditation. And it said he was walking with so much vigor and so much effort 
too much effort that kind of his system exploded and in the course of one step he died and he took came down with the other step in one of the deva realms and then he was walking he just continued his walking and he got enlightened up there (laughs) 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 this cycle this is the second of the cycles the cycle of kalesa the cycle of action and what's so important in the action the power the potency of it is in the particular power that volition has and that power is the power to bring results and so it's important as we go through our lives to really understand okay what are the unwholesome actions what are the wholesome actions because we appreciate in a much bigger sense what's going on we we enlarge our vision of what our lives are now and what they're about so there's a cycle of kalesa which conditions the cycle of action the cycle of action of karma conditions the cycle of results it's because of actions because of these volitions that different karmic results happen and we experience them in two ways we experience karmic results as different kinds of pleasant and unpleasant feelings the, the feeling quality of what happens in our lives is a karmic result and there's a karmic result of rebirth in particular planes from being unmindful of our experience as we're going along and if we're not mindful then the kalesas arise of ignorance when we're not mindful we don't know we don't know what's going on we don't understand the three characteristics and so when we're unmindful in our lives the kalesas arise of ignorance of desire of grasping from these kalesas from the cycle of kalesas comes the cycle of action because of ignorance desire and grasping we perform all kinds of actions from the cycle of actions comes the cycle of results which means new experiences arising from the new experiencing experience which arises when we're not mindful the kalesas arise from the galaxies new actions from the actions new results these are the cycles which constitute samsara which keep this wheel of rebirth going around and around and around the cycle of kilesa leading to the cycle of action leading to the cycle of results which means new experiences which condition again the cycle of kilesa So this was the Buddha's great understanding of how it's all happening how we are wandering through this endless round of rebirths He said that 
inconceivable is this beginning of wandering on in birth and death. Not to be discovered is the first beginning of beings who, obstructed by ignorance and ensnared by craving, are hurrying and hastening through the round of rebirths. Now that's, that's the vastness of this picture. Not to be discovered is the beginning of this round. But the beauty of his understanding and the beauty of our own path is that he discovered how to break this cycle of conditioning, how to free ourselves. In every moment of noting of mindfulness, there is no ignorance. When we are actually mindful in the moment, there is no ignorance operating in the mind. We understand very clearly what it is that's arising. We see it, and it's not theoretical. We actually are there in the experience of it. We know what's there, and we begin to understand the three characteristics, the impermanence of it. We understand the unsatisfying nature of it. We understand the selflessness. You know, and over these weeks, how many times, many, many times, you have seen the thoughts arise and disappear, and sensations arise and disappear, and emotions and the breath. There's so many moments of mindfulness bringing a real wisdom in the mind. In these moments of clear seeing, in these moments of mindfulness, there is no ignorance, and because there is no ignorance, there is no desire, there is no craving. When we're just with what's happening, when we're noting, when we're knowing, a breath, a sensation, a sound, a thought, a movement, there's no ignorance in the mind, there's no desire in the mind. There's no grasping in the mind. And so we are freeing ourselves in a very powerful way from this cycle of kalesa. In each moment of mindfulness, we're cutting the cycle of defilement which deconditions the cycle of karma, not giving rise in the end to the cycle of results. There is a very profound practice going on here. You know, and I know sometimes how easy it is to not see that or to forget that. You know, one is so caught up in trying to be present, trying to be mindful. But what is going on on a much deeper level is deconditioning the very forces, the very cycles which constitute the workings of this vast samsaric energy. We're really striking at the root of what keeps us bound, of what keeps us attached. This is the great, great power of mindfulness, of awakening, because we're seeing, we're uprooting in that moment the force of ignorance. 
in the Buddha's time, from the Buddha through all the women and men, you know, who have awakened, who have become enlightened, each one usually proclaims some song of awakening in their moment of freedom. And I just, it inspires me to contemplate that moment, you know, when each one of us will actually be able to sing this song of awakening, whatever our own might be. Done is what had to be done. Achieved is the end of craving. The mind has awakened to freedom. We proceed. We just proceed step after step, deconditioning these powerful forces, coming into that place of freedom. And we do it in each moment. This is, this is the power of our practice. Let's sit for a few minutes. <clears throat> 